Hello and welcome to another episode of Book Faces Live, the show where we talk the faces behind your books. I'm Nathan Van Koops, I'm your host, and today I am joined by epic fantasy writer Melissa McPhail. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you so much, Nathan. Um, it is a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you in in uh, this format again. We were able to, to hang out a little bit at the Novelist Inc. conference just recently, which was a lot of fun. And I was very, very impressed by your um, your series. You have a you have a fantasy series that is epic in every sense of the word. Can you tell people a little bit about uh, Sephiroth's Hand and your uh, Pattern of Shadow, Shadow and Light series? <clears throat> well, I'll try. the uh, <laughs> The hard part, I think, in describing epic fantasy series is that they are they have such a broad scope that you know. When you pitch a book, they want you to have one storyline or one little elevator statement, and it's almost impossible to do with epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. So uh, in my series, is I've got you know six or seven main viewpoint characters in the first book, and we're dealing with the scope of a world where the magical race uh, of they look human, but they're adepts. They're able to you know wield the life force of that realm. That race is dying off. Okay. The world uh, is out of balance, and which is a, a key concept that's discussed frequently in the book is this idea of balance and balance being sort of a, a cosmic, a natural cosmic guiding force that comes in, especially when magic is involved and interacts or you know imposes a will, let's say cosmic will on the the race a person an individual or an entire world and being out of balance is causing magic to die no one knows why and there we take it from a very wide range this is the overarching scope to a very small individuals that are going to be part of this fight to mm-hmm. figure out why is the race dying and how can you stop it how can they revert that how can they make get the world back in balance mm-hmm. that's a primary theme okay is the is the balance sort of a, a light dark good versus evil uh, or just more of a magic not magic how does that work no it's really just um it's really just what allows the world to survive hmm. so within it's not necessarily good it's not necessarily bad it doesn't have fate or destiny involved in it it's let's say you know when we're dealing with balance in relation to a, a wielder what we would call someone who's capable or work, work the life force called a lay um, without throwing too much nomenclature into our discussion someone's going to work an aspect of this power uh, think of it in terms of maybe the butterfly effect where you can push it so far you can work this magic so far, you can draw the currents of the world that, that you know the ma- the magic flows in natural currents, and it has been codified into different types of magic, but or you know, different types of energy. But if you push it too far, it's going to snap back, and something else will happen. Possibly something unexpected. Mm. Possibly something uh, that causes the individual who created that imbalance. To no longer exist, you know, it just depends on on what forces you're working with. So it's really kind of just a give and take. In the sense, uh, in this sense of the world, 
the entire world has something major occurred that caused the entire world to go out of out of balance, and so there are, there are various different manifestations of that mm. in wars, in a race that's dying, in um, different things that are indicators of this. Yeah, and of course you're saying you're bringing this home to individual characters that we care about, and you've got a lot right. of point of view characters that are, of course, interacting with it in different ways, I'm sure. Right. Um, so when we talk about um, the idea of your books being epic, one of the things I want to get across to the to the viewers and to the readers is that uh, Sephiroth's hands 780 print pages. So it's... It is huge. These are, um, you know, I think a lot of the time the industry calls them doorstoppers. They're they're heavy duty uh, fantasy books. It's old school fantasy. Um, yes. What what made you decide to write such an epic series right out of the gate, as opposed to trying to break this up into smaller stories? And why put so much into one book? That's a good question. Um, I. I don't think I was necessarily trying to write a long story so much as trying to tell the story and the way that the natural sort of cadence of the story ended up being about that. I, I wasn't in a position where I had to work with word count either as a minimum or a maximum. Mm -hmm. So I just was trying to tell the story. And I'm telling it through so many different characters in order to create... Uh, a sense not just only of the world but of you know there's there's so many other underpinnings to the series I want to be helping people see things from different viewpoints mm. if you'll allow me to digress for one moment I'll come back to sure. this it, essentially when I got into writing the story I <clears throat> I had already been re I think we you know there we were into many books into the wheel of time we had many books going. These were big epic series at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, Tad Williams was uh, writing his series. Terry Goodkind was just getting started in his series. Yeah. Of course, we had Shannara. We had, these are kind of the series of the time period. Yeah. George Martin maybe only had one book out when I started the series. Yeah. But the, there were a lot of people writing epic, the ultimate good and ultimate evil. And of course, Tolkien beginning that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I just wasn't interested in exploring that. I felt it had already been done. It had been done very well by many others. I wanted to explore the shades of gray. I don't think that any villain sets out to become a villain. Right. I think they all feel that they're firmly justified in their viewpoints. And that if you see something uh, from some other viewpoint, you could, in many cases, it feels very justified, you know? Mm -hmm. And so because my series is allegorical and I'm trying in every way to bring it home to our own lives and the way we interact in our own societies, I was really trying to write from many different viewpoints so that you could see this isn't just about what these people think. This is about a whole world and everyone has a different take on the problem, on the people who are the problems, mm -hmm. on how to solve it. So when you're writing from so many different viewpoints, in order to tell a whole book worth of story, you have one character, maybe you tell one or two characters, that'll take you 120 pages. But I have seven characters. Yeah. So to follow that story all the way through for so many different characters, it just ends up being a long, long book. Yeah. Within that, fantasy readers 
love being in the world. And if you're writing a, a world that is engaging and compelling, they're not going to want to leave, and they're going to be very, very happy to have long books and that aren't full yeah. of filler, so which it's, I try very hard to do. Yeah. Huge. These are... Um, Having a, sorry, having a little technical audio issue here over a second. I had um, the Facebook try to start streaming through the audio over here. But um, can you still hear me okay, Melissa? Yeah, did you get on my answer? I did, I did. And I, okay. uh, thank you for, for sharing that. And that was one of the things that I wanted to get into um, was about how you take a seven you know POV character book and... Um, obviously, you've given them the time and the space to, um, for the characters, to, for the readers to get invested. They've got enough time to have complete arcs for each of these characters. What are some of the things that you're doing to maybe set apart each character? Because that's a lot of different characters to invest in all at once as a reader. If you're saying, okay, I want to jump into this story, I'm not just going to follow one point of view character. I'm going to follow seven, and I'm going to get emotionally invested in all of them. Um, what are some of the things that you try to do to make each character distinct from each other and make sure that the reader has something to root for in each one of them, even if they are maybe sort of gray, like you're talking about. You mean the moral gray? Yeah, or just, I'm uh, sure not all characters fall on the same spectrum of hero, anti-hero, villain, you know, and, and as far as your point of view characters. Yeah, well, they... I don't spend a lot of time developing characters. I'm an organic writer. Mm -hmm. So for me, and I think it was Dickens who said as soon as he got the name, the character came in fully formed. And oh, wow. um, okay. that's sort of how it works for me. If I get the name right, the character is just there. I, I'm probably the worst person to talk to about how to develop characters because I don't have a lot. It's not. It's not difficult for me. They're just. I get the name, and then this character is completely fully formed in my head, and I develop his backstory as I'm going through the story. Um, but I don't necessarily notice anything about the character either. I mean, I kind of find out along with the reader. Um, but they're very distinct characters because they're very distinct individuals. So mm -hmm. I almost... They're completely different situations, a lot of them. They're, we started out with three guys traveling together, uh, interacting with another one who's sort of a you know, more immortal kind of character that's been around for a lot of years, um, coming in as a sort of mentor, but really kind of has his own agenda. And then over in the other part of the world, you've got other characters that are doing their own thing, and they're very different. You know, you've got a soldier, you've got a prince, you've got um, a truth reader who's a younger 15-year-old kid that can read the thoughts of others and know oh, if wow. they're telling the truth or lying, who's, you know, you've got a healer, you've got, she's very headstrong, um, you've got, and this is just the first book, um, but they're all so different that it's not, I don't know. It's not difficult to to tell them tell them part to tell their stories part. as their yeah. stories. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I get what you're saying. Um, so it's fascinating that you write these epic stories uh, organically, as you put it, um, in writer's terms. We would call that sort of you know the pantsing versus plotting method, where right. you're not outlining this all in advance, but you're just sort of writing as you go. Um, that's an incredible feat to try to get seven storylines to relate to each other if you're writing them on the fly. What are some Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that would I would need a map of, in my brain somehow. How do you manage to wrangle that many point of view characters without an outline? 
That's a really good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I have a lot of notes. I, I do. It's not that I, it's not that I have no outline. I don't have an outline in the sense of most writers who plot out their story. Mm-hmm. But from the beginning, I've had a concept of where I wanted the story to go. And I've had, you know, I've seen the mountain at the end of the journey. So okay. we've always been heading in a particular direction. I just don't know how we're going to get there. And so, you know, as I come to each character, I write in threads. So I try to write. This was easier in the beginning, you know, the first couple of books. I have 27 viewpoint characters now as we head into book five, yeah. which is much more difficult than seven. Yeah. But um, I write as far as I can with one character, and, and then I jump over to the, another character as they start to intersect. Mm-hmm. And then they just, you sometimes you, you've got four characters being written at one time, and sometimes I can just, you know, write kind of in a vacuum if one character's off doing his own thing. And I have to make a lot of notes. Uh, yeah. This chapter sequencing has to come before so-and-so goes to such-and-such a place, but after yeah. this other thing happens. And I, so as I'm about to write a character, I'll sit down and go, okay, what, what are the next, you know, two or three things that need to happen for them, these big sort of milestone events for them? Mm-hmm. So I, I I plan it. It's more than planning as I go, as opposed to planning the entire book in advance. Okay. Uh, but I I do end up with enough planning that it enables me to write. I can't just sit down with no plan for the character at all and then have anything happen. Right. Um, of course. But it's definitely not you know sequenced out chapter by chapter. This is going to happen and this is going to happen. It doesn't. I can't do that. Yeah. Um, well, that's an that, that's an interesting tactic, and having that many characters is mind-boggling for me. But um, it's very impressive. I was actually um, on your website and reading through your uh, dramatis personae uh, section, where it was like you were itemizing all the different characters out from the different books and different you know parts of the realm, I guess. And I was massively impressed with your ability to name all of these characters. Such interesting <laughs> names. Uh, part of part of the the challenge of writing a really convincing fantasy world is coming up with language, coming up with terminology, of course, and then also naming things. Do you have a particular naming convention, or how did you how do you go about naming characters? I uh, well, um, if you ask some of my detractors, it would be to come up with the names that are most difficult and impossible to say. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have these sun dragons who are immortal creatures. They're created at the beginning of time to balance, be the balance to creation. And you have dragons that are, they're shapeshifters. And so they, you know, they have the dragons that create and balance the beginning of things and the, the kind of dragons that balance the end of things. And you can't have a dragon that's been around since the beginning of time and call him Bill. Right. You know, he's got to have some kind of really, you know, I don't know, difficult name, I think, to, to, to deal with them. These, for, you know, the primary dragon here, for example, is Jabu Balaji Shudanai, and his mm-hmm. name means he who walks the edge of the world. And I just okay. feel like that's the right amount of gravitas for, you know, an immortal character. Yeah. But when I was coming up with those names, I went to 
sort of a Sanskrit Indian foundation since the, the Vedas are some of the oldest writings of this world. It yeah. just felt like it was the right sort of uh, base to draw from. I've purposely tried to keep my names associated with certain uh, this world cultures mm. because it's because the series is allegorical. It enables me to sort of give a sense of a place or a sense of a culture that um, without necessarily having to do an enormous amount of recreating it in the reader's mind. Yeah. So I can spend more time with developing a character or developing a concept instead of having to spend a lot of time describing the world that this or the, or the kingdom that this particular character comes from mm -hmm. because people will just fill in those blanks if they hear yeah. an Indian name or a Farsi name or a you know an Arabic styled name mm -hmm. they're going to fill in those pieces themselves and I don't even French I don't have to then work very hard with all of that background it sort of comes with the name yeah. so I know there's a lot of fantasy authors who try to stay away from or kind of lean towards the 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 elvish or the completely different sort of style that the, that my rationale was let's keep it grounded in this earth's sort of culture but it's very far back it's like ancient persia you know and yeah. and ancient even you know prior ancient sumeria in some cases you know as opposed to the post christian world mm. yeah and I think it's a very, I saw uh, your map on your website, which is very cool, um, kind of showing a lot of the different you know areas where people are traveling, which is always a, a big win for fantasy readers. We all love maps and uh, keeping track of the world. Um, what were some of the influences you had or, or some of the, the world-building um, kind of ideas you had at the start of this? Just why create this particular fantasy world? Any, any particular um, parts of the world that you're especially proud of that are, that are unique to your series? Hmm. Well, I I think if I was going to recreate the map now, of course, mm. it's the benefit of hindsight and experience. Yeah. I would create it differently. Oh, but when I was writing it, uh, when I was first writing the story, I I just needed. I was just kind of coming up with names that sounded good at the time. Uh, you know, I needed to describe a carpet, and I wanted it to seem like. The kind of, you know, Arabic styled or Turkish carpet, but I couldn't use the word Turkish. And so I'm like, okay, Venetian sounds sort of like, I think people will get that concept. So I just yeah. said Venetian carpet, but then I had to realize, well, I better figure out where Venetia is going to be. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't spell, you know, and it, 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 that's always one where I was like, yeah, I think I would have come up with this different name if I really was thinking through this. Yeah. But I didn't really think through it. I didn't plan it out. You don't. I didn't know about the place until I got to the place in the story, and mm -hmm. then, and then I kind of had to go back and script the map based on where the story had taken us. Mm -hmm. So again, yeah. it's pretty backwards compared to the guys that sit down and plot out the maps. I just recently, I'm working on some new maps. We're we're redoing all the maps for the world and expanding the maps that had never really been expanded on for the, mm. the far western and the far eastern kingdoms. Yeah, and. In redoing those maps, I actually had to go flesh out all of the city names, place names, and so forth for the Eastern Kingdoms of Miocene, Avatar, and Zest. And that was really fun, because it yeah. was the first time my set could sit down and go, okay, 
what do I want these names to sound like? And and uh, and yeah. and uh, if I'm going to go there, what kind of place will it be like? And I've, I've never done it that way before, so it was pretty fun. That is cool. Uh, Kay Clark asks, so do you include a pronunciation glossary in your books? I do for the ones that feel really hard. Yeah. Like the Sun Dragons are in the back of the book in the in the image of Battles Persona it says how to pronounce them. All the different names. Um, Not every single one, but try I tried to do it with the harder ones. Yeah. Ernie Dempsey comments um, on your cover, he says beautiful cover. Um, is this a Demanza cover? I think we might have talked about that yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we had Damon Freeman on a previous episode. Uh, from Demanza and he, you know, gorgeous, gorgeous work with the way they work with light, which is mm-hmm. very fitting, obviously, for your series name. Um, yeah. What were some of the inspirations you had going into your cover designs? I just, you know, I wanted this series. I rebranded the series actually at the third book. So okay. by the with the current covers that we have, they were all created or recreated when I was about to publish the third book. So I had a, a pretty good concept at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I'm realizing my microphone is moving again. I had a pretty good concept at that point of how I wanted the series to feel. Uh, there, you know, I'm. It has a sophistication to it. Uh, it has an elegance to it. I mean, there's actually an aesthetic to. I mean, not you know, the writing can be lyrical or it can be very driven for where we're in a fight scene. You don't want some big flowery language when you're uh, trying to have a sword fight. It ba- there's a balance between those two. But I, I just, I was trying to have the covers kind of ref- try to reflect what the series feels like to read. Mm. And so when I was describing it to the cover designer, I was using those kinds of words to sort of help them find, I, I don't know, something that seems to be a correct reflection of the world. And I think she's, my cover designer did a fantastic job at, at capturing that. Yeah, it, they really did. I think it turned out beautifully. I think they're, they're fascinating to look at. And obviously they offer such a intriguing, you know, invitation to, to jump okay. into this world. And I think that they, they turned out uh, fantastic. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on you personally, it's obvious, it's obvious that you have um, sort of spiritual side. I know you're, uh, very into to yoga on your on your website. Talk about your your yoga practices. Uh, how did your personal spirituality influence your um, the world building that you did? Significantly. Yeah. I mean, I the whole series. I I would say more than just the world building, but the world building goes along with what you're trying to communicate in your series. So you know, I feel like my series is really almost more like a a treatise on philosophy okay. disguised as fantasy, you know. Um, I I like touching upon these aspects of ethics, ethicality, and morality, and what the difference between those concepts are. Can you have an ethical right and a moral wrong, um, and what would that look like? Hmm. Um, I've read enormously of many different philosophies and. Um, especially love um, Emerson as probably one of my big influences, but otherwise everyone from lots of, I've read every one of the major religions, um, have found a lot of commonality in my own belief in Buddhism, as well as on the other opposite end, um, a lot of truths that you would find in Christian truths. And mm-hmm. But where I'm trying to write from 
is not really religion. It's from, it's from a, it's a little hard to say. I don't want to, it's just I'm trying to write from a, a place that maybe people can find a truth no matter what they believe mm-hmm. or where what their background is or where they come from. And so I've been, I pull from all of these different backgrounds and, and philosophies that I've studied to help inform both my character's viewpoints as well as the conflicts that we're facing in the story. Yeah. So, of course, that influences the world building because you're going to have, to need to have a world that, no, you're not going to have every religion at peace with every other religion. It's completely unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to have every ideology at peace with every other ideology. And so as we've grown the stories and the series, we've grown, you know, expanding different ideologies, even from what we think in the beginning is, it's all this way, it has to be this way, to as we, you know, in the magic system, as we go to other parts of the world and we learn that they don't study that magic system at all, that everything we know about the magic is completely different from the way that they've learned it. Mm-hmm. And, and all of that, I feel, is a way of informing that there are so many universal truths and they can all be communicated in different, through different ideologies and different dogma. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely influenced the series. I think that that's an interesting aspect of fantasy as a genre overall, because so many of the, you know, the classic fantasy stories, whether it be Tolkien or you know C.S. Lewis, I mean, these are these are guys who had a very strong spiritual, personal background that they imbued into um, these you know these classic series, and then I think that's something that fantasy readers have maybe come to expect is that. There is going to be a whether it's the you know the force in Star Wars or there's going to be some sort of spiritual element. Do you feel like that's an essential part of a fantasy world? I think of a good one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, certainly, magic should be ideally be a central part of it of the theme mm-hmm. of the story. Mm-hmm. I think that in you know since um, George Martin came out with his series, it's gotten a li- that has gotten a little bit more um, loose. Mm-hmm. It used to be a very uh, if it doesn't have magic as a central part of its theme, you can't classify it as fantasy. Now right. we have so many different sub-genres of fantasy that you can almost anything goes, which is fantastic, yeah. you know, in its way. Um, but I, I, for me, the ones that are the most interesting are the ones that deal with these deeper concepts that mm-hmm. that explore this idea. Yes, you're exploring good and evil. It doesn't necessarily have to be ultimate good and ultimate evil, but there's some aspect of that to what's going on. And I think anytime you're using magic, and on the, on the flip side, using science, uh, mm-hmm. say when we hit the sci-fi side of the genre, yes. that if you're not exploring the ethicality of it, you're kind of missing out. Yeah. Uh, because it, it, first of all, in a whole way of reaching and tapping into readers and tapping into their emotions and their own soapboxes and feelings and perspectives, but also because I don't think it's very real that you could use, you could have magic and not have people that oppose the magic or people that are prejudiced against the magic or mm-hmm. people who, the magics, the magicians themselves that are elitist towards others. Like, there's yeah. going to be this interchange. And if you don't explore that, then you haven't, I feel like that's what you're just missing out. Yeah, I, I would agree. And it seems like that magic often... Every time you have something that's powerful like that, it becomes um, a mirror almost for the person who's using it as to whether they use it for good, whether they use it for evil. And of course, it often comes with 
some sort of ancient elements. I think a, a good fantasy world usually involves a lot of depth of history. You know, mm-hmm. you know if we think about Tolkien having you know three thousand years worth of history before we ever even get to um, you know, the Hobbit or things like that. And, and of course, you know, you've got ageless dragon, in, you know, immortal dragons that you know have. There's an element of truth that has to be at the core that's ancient and sort of immovable. And I think that you know, it sounds like you've got that well dialed in for your fantasy world as well. But um, I think, I mean, for me anyway, that's just as a fantasy reader, I, I definitely I look for some sort of element of ancient truth in there. I um, agree, yeah. Um, we've managed to already blaze through um, almost... Yeah. A full half hour. And I, I feel like I could talk to you for a long time because we barely even touched on on half the things that I wanted to ask you questions about. But um, I know that there was there was a little bit of a, an audio glitch right in the beginning when I first started this. So there, I know some people weren't able to ask their questions live because I think some of the, uh, the original links I posted up might have been broken and this posted up as a separate uh, video. But for anyone who's watching the replay, if you do have questions or comments, uh, for Melissa, and you want to post them up in the comments, I know she'd be happy to come back on and um, answer those. We'll try to repost the video wherever we can as well. Um, Definitely. Melissa, where can people find more information about you and communicate with you uh, about your books? My blog, uh, my website, melissamcphail.com. I'm also very active on Facebook. The uh, Facebook link is Zephyrell's Hand. And I'm also on Twitter, but pretty much I try to answer everyone who writes to me. Yeah. So I um, would be happy to communicate. Yeah, that was one of the things that I noticed about your um, website was when I was going through the comments on your blog was that how many comments you had. First of all, you had a very engaged readership, and you were also commenting back to all of them. Um, quick, just real quick before we we wrap up, but is there something in particular that you're doing um, that's sort of increasing your reader engagement? What are you doing that's that's connecting so well with these readers, other than just you know commenting back? I, I couldn't, I couldn't say, Nathan, other than I really love the interaction. I love uh, hearing back from readers about the book, even if they have a disagreement or something, or they're pissed off at me. Mm -hmm. You know, I like getting the feedback, and I, and I, and I feel honored whenever anyone leaves me comments or comments on any of my ads, and so I feel like if they're going to take the time to leave a comment, even sometimes if it's you know, not a necessarily polite comment because they don't think anybody is going to answer them. I try to answer them because I want them to know that there is a person on the other end of this book who cares about their viewpoint. So I feel like if I'm writing a book that's all about viewpoints and I'm not really interested in receiving the viewpoints of my readers, that's quite a hypocrisy. So I really try to avoid that. Yeah, makes sense. And it's obviously working because, like I said, it seems like you have a really engaged uh, readership who are you know, raring to go and, and roaring for your next book. Um, and they're saying book five says it's going to be out in uh, next year? Yes, hopefully in the first half of 2019. All right, what's that one going to be called? It, I haven't released it yet. So, okay, all right. Um, December coming up, I think, is I'll have a, I'm working on a cover uh, release and the name release. So um, oh, I don't want to commit to anything just yet. <laughs> all right. Um, well, but we'll, we do have, I have it in the works, and yeah, I'm really excited about it. We'll, we'll stay tuned, and um, you know, we would love to have you back on again as a guest of the show, maybe when, when the next book out in the series uh, you know, comes out, okay. maybe we can have you back. We would love, Thank to, you, Nathan. love to chat with you. I'd love to be back. All right. Thank you so much. 
Thank you everyone for watching the episode and um, we appreciate everyone listening and, and watching the show and we'll see you again next time.